Hey everyone, welcome to the latest Green Section podcast episode. I'm the host, Adam Miller. Uh, on this episode, I talked with Jim Brosnan, professor at the University of Tennessee, uh, to get his perspective on all things Poannua as superintendents, particularly in the Southeast, prepare for their annual battle with one of Turf's most problematic weeds. Here's the conversation with Jim. Jim, thanks for joining us. It's always great to talk to you. I know it's a busy time in Knoxville, and I'd imagine it's you know an exciting time. You've got the students back, and the uh, football team's 1-0 start. Yeah, no, I mean, we'll, we'll take any win we can get these days. The schedule's just going to get a little harder as uh, we get deeper into the fall. But yeah, it's, it's a busy time. I mean, as we kind of end our, our summer work research-wise and you know working with superintendents on questions about crabgrass and goosegrass, it doesn't seem... Pretty quickly, we get into conversations about POA and what to do about it and how to move forward in the best way we can. And the past couple of years with the golf boom, those conversations have been even more frequent. Well, that's why I'm so glad we've got you here uh, talking today because, yeah, POA control in the in the Southeast and really in the entire South is, is such a challenge. I spend most of my time visiting golf courses in the Northeast where we grow POA and it's you know, the majority of, uh, I, I would bet the majority of courses have a lot of pole on their golf course that they're managing, but it's a major weed issue in the southern half of the country and especially your neck of the woods in the southeast. So, you know, I guess before we get too much into management uh, of POA, what about it from a biological standpoint, you know, is it that really makes it such a tough weed to get a handle on? Well, I mean, it's everywhere, right? It, it, it kind of follows human movement. It's wildly adaptable uh, in terms of environmental adaptability. I think there's a paper out there that documents that Poe is on every continent, including Antarctica, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. And I think, you know, we've seen that. I know the superintendents that I work with, and I'm sure the same is true with you, Adam, and, uh, you know, Jordan and the agronomists that cover this region, you know, as we've seen more play and more traffic and single rider golf carts throughout the pandemic, you know, that additional stress on the golf course, if you will, has led to, to more POA issues, even more so than there was pre-pandemic uh, that were related to resistance issues, which are still there. And I think as we've seen more use on the facilities, it's just made the problem maybe even a little bit more exacerbated. You hit the nail on the head right away with uh, the resistance issues. So we'll, we'll dive into that. I mean, it's usually one of the first things that comes up when you know you start talking about POA control and POA in the in the southeast. So I guess to start, what active ingredients or modes of action are you seeing the most resistance issues with? I mean, kind of all of them, I guess, would be the most snarky way to answer that question. It depends a little bit on where you are, um, you know, in the, the northern transition zone where our warm season grasses go dormant, you know, we have pretty widespread glyphosate resistance that as you get further south into uh, the southeast, uh, where we don't go fully dormant, that's uh, a little bit less of a thing. We did some work in, I guess, the late 2010s, like 2017-ish, some survey work that I've talked about a lot, where we took the state of Tennessee, divided it into regions, picked 30 golf courses per region that we knew were managing warm season grasses on fairways. We would go to those golf courses, randomly pick a hole, collect any plants that were uh, present above a benchmark density level, bring them back to the greenhouse, grow them out for seed, and then screen them for resistance. So it was a true random sample because, you know, to get numbers on percent resistant, we wanted to have, you know, 
you'd be collecting some susceptible, susceptible, right? Because you're trying to get a percent of the total. We did that. And I mean, even in 2017, we were over uh, a 60% likelihood of having glyphosate resistance from a random plant collection. And that's probably only increased since then. Uh, I think our level of barricade resistance was in the uh, approaching the same level for Tennessee, like 50, I want to say 55, 57%. We had a lot of instances of multiple resistance where we had uh, plants that were resistant to more than one of the herbicides we tested. And then uh, a few cases where we were uh, resistant to everything that was in the experiment. And we chalked that up at least as a working kind of hypothesis to uh, non-target site resistance, which is a phenomenon that is, I think anybody who works in breed science would agree. It's a phenomenon that we don't know a whole lot about. We know that it affects the end user uh, greatly, and we need to understand it a little bit more and it's probably out there in more uh, of a footprint than we think at this point. So a couple of follow-ups around resistance. I know, you know, it's not all resistance is the same. So can you talk for a minute about sort of the basic difference between target site and non-target site resistance and why that's important for superintendents to understand? Yeah, sure. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm also a little empathetic to the superintendents that, you know, come to educational conferences and hear talks about this and it gets beaten into them about resistance, 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 right? And, you know, now there's different types of resistance. So it's important to kind of, to nuance this. I mean, I think from the end user perspective, uh, whether you're the assistant or the superintendent or the spray tech, you know, resistance is broad spectrum A, okay, the herbicide chemistry that I've been using isn't working the way that it had worked in the past. We were once susceptible, and now we are no longer susceptible to that um, that application. To go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole, uh, you can have what's called target site resistance. And the way that I explain this in my class is uh, to think of it like a lock and a key, where the uh, plant, the POA plant, would be the lock and the herbicide would be the key. And when we have a target site resistance situation, the herbicide cannot bind correctly in the plant to do what's intended. So using that kind of lock and key metaphor, the lock can't fit into the key and function in the way that it's intended to do to unlock uh, the lock. And that's an easy way to kind of understand target site resistance is that kind of lock and key dynamic. and that's really prevalent with uh, glyphosate. It's really prevalent with the ALS inhibitors. The plants will have a target site mutation within the DNA that prevents the herbicide from binding in the way um, that it's intended to bind. Non-target site resistance is different, and that's when we have multiple mechanisms. It's kind of a catch-all term. Like We can have multiple mechanisms. It could be metabolism-based. It could be uh, absorption-based, translocation-based, sequestration-based, basically any other mechanism out there that prevents the herbicide from getting to the target site, we slap on this term non-target site resistance. The easy way for superintendents to remember that is keeping on that lock and key metaphor, think about non-target site resistance like you've broken your arm. So now it doesn't really matter what key you're using, right? Because you can't move the key to the lock to do what it's intended to do. And we see that in non-target site resistant populations that 
typically you are going to uh, now have plants that will survive treatment from one, two, three, or four different modes of action that are completely unrelated. And it it's a pretty dire spot if you're a golf course superintendent to be in where the uh, ways out of that are not uh, not numerous and the ones that are out there are uh, not perfect either. Some of them are really expensive. Some of them are pretty invasive in the, in the, you know, the case of maybe trying to phrase mow your way out of that. It's not a good situation, Adam. Yeah. So before we get to that, cause I, I do want to touch a lot on that, you know, just sort of a, a question for my own, you know, my own curiosity in the Northeast, we see POA seeding primarily in the spring, but we'll see it seed randomly you know, towards the tail end of summer sometimes, you know, even sometimes throughout the entire summer. So I guess is the seed production or because it's such a prolific seed producer, does that, does that also play a factor in the resistance issues? I think most certainly it does. I mean, you think about a herbicide, just, just 10,000 foot view, it's, it's a, it's a selection agent, right? And, you know, when we have plants that produce seed, now we, that has all of the genetic makeup of the mother plant that was there. And it is now putting a bigger canvas down for selection to occur. And it's one of the reasons why when we think about resistant weeds in general, it's mostly a conversation about annuals that produce a lot of seed. And there's a lot of larger population from which to select resistant survivors from. So I, I think that's a really big part of it. Well, one of the other factors, I should say, with POA management that we're still learning more about that doesn't really have anything to do with resistance is that when you went through school and when I went through school, you know, we kind of learned that, well, POA is an annual plant. And you know, in your part of the world where, you know, an annual plant is defined as something that goes through one reproduct reproductive cycle, senesces and dies. And that's not true of POA in Pennsylvania or Massachusetts or New Jersey or Michigan, that they can have multiple seed head events throughout the year. And I think we've all kind of got ourselves into this place. Well, the perennial ones are the ones that are really high shoot density that we use on putting greens that maybe don't seed out. And I'm not so sure that that's true. I mean, I, I had a graduate student recently, Devin Carroll, who's now uh, graduated, Dr. Devin Carroll, and moved on and, and works uh, in herbicide development for Bayer. And her PhD work really got into this, that we can see plants that are bunch type, upright growth, not on putting greens that produce seed that survive all summer long. You know, I think that complicates management from the standpoint that if you're one who say you're managing bent grass greens in the Southeast and you have warm season grass in your surrounds, well, if you're relying solely on pre-emergence chemistry, I'm not so sure that that's going to be all that effective for you because a lot of the POA that might be in those surrounds that gets overspray fungicide applications that are going out on a regular interval in the summer, maybe a little bit of overspray uh, irrigation water if you don't have in and out head. That's going to be there all summer long too. So a, a barricade application or any other pre that you would choose isn't going to do what you want. And that has nothing to do with resistance. Yeah, it's, it's such a complicated system when you think about something you said earlier, how widely adapted POA really is to, to every continent. So last question on the resistance, and you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit with your mention of phrase mowing, but when you've got resistance to multiple modes of action or kind of stacked resistance, you know, that's un unsettling and hard to not be uh, sympathetic for superintendents dealing with that. So 
how should superintendents, you know, adjust their their control strategy? I've heard you say a few times, you know, the answer to resistance, uh, you know, herbicide resistance doesn't come from a jug. Right. Yeah, and I can't take credit for that quote. That's uh, originates from Steve Powell's, who is a, uh, a resistance researcher in Western Australia who works mainly in in cereal uh, cereal crops. I think it's a difficult one. We're, we've started to research this a little bit here um, this fall, kind of creating a scenario of, okay, let's say that I've exhausted uh, my selective herbicide chemistry. Well, then what do I do? And I, I don't know that there's any real easy answer to that. I find myself struggling with superintendents will send us plants for resistance testing, and it comes back that you're resistant to six modes of action. Well, what do I recommend you do to remedy that on the golf course? I, I don't know. And you know, I joke with people that everybody wants to have this savior herbicide that comes down, you know, with angel's wings and saves the day. If it's a non-target site resistant population with a mechanism that we don't understand, I don't know that I can tell you that the $200 an acre or more investment in that is is going to be worth it for you to put out over 30 or 40 acres of fairways in, in today's world. I mean, I think part of this is issue of having a conversation about expectation management. And you think about golf courses in your part of the world, Poe is part of the canopy, right? It's it's a kind of a mixed sward and Poe is part of that. And if it gets really, really bad, maybe there's a decision to renovate. But most of the time, there's an acceptance that we're providing a surface for play POA is part of that surface. And I think we kind of need to move maybe a little bit more towards that in the South, where I know the dormancy makes it harder because of the color contrast. At the end of the day, one of the things that we're working on now is, can you use a combination of, say, growth regulator and maybe pigmentation product and maybe a mowing height adjustment to try to mask this in a way that it keeps the surface still playable and it's just going to ebb and flow throughout the year based on the environmental conditions that are there. I don't know that we can do that just yet. I mean, I, this started from going to agronomic weed science talks and they'll talk about Palmer amaranth, right? Which is a, a major weed of row crops and, and has massive resistance issues that are widespread. And well, the answers to that really have not been spray product X. They've been, well, maybe we, we go back to tillage. Maybe we go back to cover cropping. Uh, maybe we do crop rotations where we're uh, soybeans, soybeans in one crop, and then we're into corn in the next crop. Well, none of those are options in turf grass, right? So what are we going to do in a turf situation? And I'm not sure yet. You know, thankfully, I know you and I think 15 other folks are working on, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of important work on that resist pole project. So uh, that's that's extremely important. So hopefully we'll have some more answers uh, around that type of uh, those types of questions in the near future. Um, before that work is completed, let's let's sort of bring it to, you know, kind of upcoming spray programs, prevention programs that superintendents are going to be implementing along with their cultural programs. So from a spray equipment calibration application volume type scenario, um, you know, to make herbicide applications most effective, you know, what do you think superintendents can do in that respect? Well, I'd first off, I'd say do all the things you just said, right? <laughs> Actually calibrate your equipment and make sure that you've got everything set up optimally um, to do what you're trying to do, because um, I don't think that can be taken for granted in a world where control is 
becoming harder and harder for reasons that are related to not only resistance, but just kind of the environment being tougher to control this plant with all the stress that's being put on the golf course from additional cart traffic and play uh, and what have you. I mean, I don't think there's a magic elixir of, you know, you're going to get 20% better control at a certain GPA uh, versus another. Um, obviously, I think you want to avoid the extremes. I mean, I wouldn't have you putting out a herbicide program at, at 10 gallons per acre or at, at 150 gallons per acre. I think in the the window at which most of our work is done, it would be kind of a splitting hairs phenomenon. I, I will say though that, you know, put a little little time into, and, and, and I know that you know, the green section's good about working with superintendents about stuff like this, where, you know, you understand the chemistry you're working with, that if you're, use, you're using a compound that's root absorbed, well, we need to move that into the soil. Well, putting that out at a lower carrier volume, well, maybe that doesn't make the most sense. Maybe we want to put that out at a little bit higher of a carrier volume in order to get it to move off the leaf and into the soil to do what we want it to do. Um, so I think kind of just taking the time to understand everything's more expensive now, and sometimes it's harder to source, checking all the boxes to set it up to be as optimal as we can, I think just makes good sense. Let's talk about control programs. I th- you know, everyone can look up different herbicides and their efficacy and, and how they work, so to speak, for POA control, but putting it all together in a program, I think is something that would be really uh, good to talk about. So Starting with pre-emergent applications, it, it seems like you mentioned the barricade resistance, but let's just kind of go to pre-emergent in general. A single app in the southeast just doesn't seem like it's going to last long enough. And, and even in some cases, split apps might not be as effective, whether that's because of shifting you know, weather patterns or, or whatever. And I, I even know a few courses that are looking at like monthly apps of spectacle at, at lower rates for longer control uh, you know, through the, uh, you know, through winter and into early spring. So what's your take on designing a pre-emergent application program? So, I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, I, I think, and, and I might be an outlier in how I approach this, but one of the things that I've, I've been working with superintendents on is we've historically built programs based on application timing of when we want to spray herbicide X. And I've kind of pushed superintendents to say, okay, I'd rather have you build your program based on what's the highest priority area of the golf course for you and then go out from there. So like many of the superintendents in Tennessee will say, you know, particularly the guys in the eastern part of the state that maybe are managing bent grass and then they have warm season surrounds. Well, let's build, let's take my budget resource that I have. Let's make sure that the edge of the green to 50 yards is as good of a program as I can have it. And then what are the things that I want to do to have a, a really nice uh, program in there, whether that's pre-chemistry, post-chemistry, or a mixture of both. And then let's back up from there and say, okay, now I'm going to go 50 yards to 250 fairway height. What does my program look like there, whether that's pre-chemistry, uh, post-chemistry, or a mixture of both, and then maybe everywhere else. And just kind of build the programs based on where things are need to be the cleanest and take your allotted budget resource and put it 
there and make sure that's as good as it can be. Because, you know, my experience working with clubs is that POA is not, again, barring the extremes, the issues really are most problematic when you're either on the surface of a a warm season green or in the immediate surrounds around a, a warm season or a cool season green in kind of the, for Tennessee, probably the February through April window. I would agree with that. And the, you know, the challenging part with all this is everyone can see a pole plant once it, once it pops in a, especially in a dormant, dormant surface. So, um, good, good advice there in terms of sort of prioritizing, you know, where your, your highest play areas are from a, a surface standpoint, because it, you know, we'll, we'll touch on, uh, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier about managing a surface that maybe has some pole on it versus focusing on keeping it hundred percent clean. Um, so in terms of post-emergent applications, you know, non-selective herbicides for those that don't have, uh, resistance to glyphosate, you know, are a great option, especially, obviously you got to not overseed, but the timing of those non-selective herbicides, it seems like, you know, paying attention on social media, it just seems like it's harder maybe to make those applications, Bermuda grass, maybe staying a little bit greener, later into the into the year and again could be a response to changes in weather patterns you know who, who knows um so any tips for timing you know dormant apps um or maybe trying different products like exonerate or you mentioned growth regulators before um you know talk to me a little bit about that well it's funny you know i think we've kind of gotten into a weird spot with non-selectives that there's non-selective applications in the southeast that are going out on green turf for poa control as, as an add-in to a, you know, take a three-way mixture or a two-way mixture that might have a traditional group two product with a group three and then putting in low rates of glyphosate with that uh, on green turf. Those, I mean, I'll be honest, those are at this point with not having a lot of experience. I mean, we probably put that in maybe five to 10 treatments last year and everything was okay. Um, not having a ton of experience, have a little bit of heartburn because, you know, things happen, right? Like, you know, you can miss a decimal place, you can overlap, you can, who knows? And when you're working with the non-selective, it can be pretty unforgiving. So have a lot of heartburn about recommending that at this point, but I know that it's happening. Resistance is the driver in that happening. So it's hard to give like a, a firm window. Um, you know, what, one of the things I'll, I'll tell any superintendent that wants to go the non-selective route is run your own experiment take the range go out spray an area in the range and evaluate that area before you go out onto the entirety of the golf course um, i think that's a real stewardly way to approach it and i in many who have expressed interest in making a november or december application of a low rate of glyphosate mixed with two or three other products you know, my advice to them is to start there. And if you have green turf and you want to use a non-selective, go put it on an area of green turf where if it goes wrong, it's okay because you don't want to go down the middle of the first fairway with five to eight ounces of Roundup in the tank and have it go wrong because that's that's bad for a long time. Yeah, it's a it's an unnerving feeling kind of going out there i would imagine with uh, with a non-selective. It's it, when you're trying to kill something, it's it's hard to kill. When you're not trying to kill everything, it's, you know, Murphy's Law can come into play. That's right. I mean, it, and it takes a lot of guts. And I don't know, as a superintendent, that I would I would have the guts to do it, to pour the, the roundup in the tank and, and, and go after it. And 
And that would be true for, for glyphosate. That would be true with reward. It would be true with any of the glufosinate products that are in the industry too. And, you know, I think one of the things that many of the, the superintendents in the Southeast have seen uh, that have dealt with glyphosate resistance in dormant situations. So making the applications to dormant turf, January, February uh, of the year, then have moved into other chemistry because glyphosate's been become ineffective for them. The alternatives don't work nearly as well as glyphosate did. Um, you know, whether it's Cheetah Pro, Finale XL, or Reward, you can you can get to success. You, you can make those work. You can get to success, but I think it's just a little bit more complicated to do so than what we were accustomed to working with with a glyphosate application. And I've seen them seen the posts on social media like you, Adam, where you tend to see the posts where it's gone wrong rather than where it's gone right, but they're out there. How about programs for post-emergent applications kind of midwinter, you know, in an overseeded situation? Overseeding, it's not as common in the Southeast as it once was. But that being said, I mean, I know a lot of courses that are, they're flush with cash. They've got more rounds than they had pre-COVID. You know, there's there's some concern over wear tolerance. And again, they've, they've got some resources now that maybe they they didn't, and uh, they're thinking about you know pulling the trigger back again with uh, with the overseed. So, you know, w- what do you think about uh, post-emergent apps in that overseeded situation? So it's tricky because there's there's not a whole lot of tools, in all honesty, um, for that use pattern. The superintendents I know that have had the most success with this have really kind of front loaded their programs. There's use directions on the barricade label, for example. Uh, for a barricade program pre-ryegrass overseeding. Uh, I believe you can put revolver out in warm season turf pre-ryegrass overseeding as soon as seven days before overseeding. You could do both of those things. Like you could run the barricade program and then stack the revolver on top of it. I would think in a POA control conversation, any sort of diversity and additive you can do, the better, right? Because the barricade program assumes that your plants are barricade susceptible. The revolver program assumes that your plants are uh, ALS inhibitor susceptible. So adding and stacking diversity is just going to help that move forward. One of the things I think is interesting, we, we haven't done a ton of work with this, but we have plots on the ground right now to delve a little bit deeper. The idea of a non-selective, of, uh, fairly close to overseeding, like within seven days of overseeding, whether that's a reward application um, I know there's some superintendents in the West that have used scythe, for example, uh, immediately prior to overseeding to try to kind of burn down the Bermuda grass canopy that might be there. Um, I think those are really interesting programs. We're going to do a little experimentation this year with uh, some PGR applications before overseeding to see can we uh, use those to our advantage and in a mix with herbicide chemistry. We've got a couple experimentals that show some promise for use around, around overseeding, whether those continue, whether those make the market or continue, we, we shall see that's to be determined. But I think the other thing is, you know, the idea, knowing that phrase mowing, particularly in Bermuda grass can reduce the, uh, POA population. The idea of phrase mowing pre overseeding is interesting. Um, as a mechanical tool for POA control, you know, phrase mowing has its own, I don't want to say, I don't know what the right word would be. Phrase mowing has its own list of considerations, you know, particularly what do you do with the debris? But I know for those that have tried it, it has certainly worked well. And and it got its foothold, right? If you think about it, it's got its foothold with 
rye, you know, ryegrass sports fields in the UK where they would come in. And I think they still do this at the all England lawn and tennis club for Wimbledon. Well, they'll phrase mow the uh, existing court surface off and then plant new ryegrass. And that has allowed them to keep the surfaces there pretty devoid of POA. Can we do that over 30 acres of fairways? That'd be a pretty big lift right now. Could we do that on a range tee? Probably. Could we do it on par three tees? Maybe. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say it's going to be easy, but it's certainly another tool. Let's let's shift into talking about POA on Ultra Dwarf Greens. You know, it, it seems like, you know, there could be courses with very similar programs, budgets, ages of grades, you know, that one course has success and doesn't really deal with POA uh, coming up on their Ultradorf greens and, and the course next door might have some issues. So what are the factors involved that, that you see that lead to some courses having POA on Ultradorf greens and, and others don't? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. And I'm sure you you see this and your particularly your uh, agronomy uh, colleagues who cover the Southeast see it too, that you know, not every golf course is the same. Not every superintendent is the same in terms of how they approach this. I mean, I think there's definitely going to be club to club variability in what's acceptable versus unacceptable. There's a willingness to maybe make applications to greens where some superintendents might be a little bit more hesitant just due to the value of the real estate, if you will. I mean, I can think of uh, some courses here in this region, maybe old Ross architecture with a lot of movement in greens that were a little hesitant to maybe use a material like curb that's root absorbed. And in the caution, I think is well taken that, you know, if I make this application at label rate, I get a heavy rain. Now I get maybe movement of that herbicide into the, the lower areas of the green at a higher concentration. That could get me into a situation that I'm uncomfortable with. So I, I do think there's superintendent to superintendent variability just in not only how they approach the situation, but their willingness maybe to take risks and chances. I also think the, you know, the play variability can't be understated that like you can have two courses with similar superintendents and similar budgets. And if one of them is going to have more play, well, then I think that's going to be an environment where the POA pressure just inevitably is going to be higher. And I think another thing, too, is that, you know, you look at kind of the, the route of entry into and out of the green, kind of maybe the sanitation, if you will, in the green surrounds and roughs could be a potential variable in that matrix, too, where if I've got rough or, you know, kind of walkway areas that have a lot of POA in them and my, I have a lot of play and players are walking on and off you know, moving POA into the surface, that's certainly going to be a variable. And then, you know, to add to the list, right, because it's the most interesting plant in the world, you know, I think the fungicide programs that are used on those greens are a variable too, that, you know, if you are in season, and I'm not a pathologist, I have, you know, lots of good pathology friends, but, you know, if you are in season with your program, and you're going to have protection for things like anthracnose, well, any POA that may be in your green is going to continue to be in your green, where if you have a fungicide program that maybe misses anthracnose, well, now that's going to be environment for the POA to be taken out of that green in the summer. So when we get into the next winter, it's going to manifest itself cleaner than the green that, that was the alternative. Yeah, really good point. I, and, you know, I think Ultradorf greens are far from... Uh, you know, what they were originally touted as in terms of not, not having the disease issues of, of bankgrass. I mean, it, I, I've been told the, 
Ulcerdorf's are almost like a pathologist's dream in the southeast because they they seem to get so much. Um, but yeah, again, I'm not in a pathologist either. <laughs> yeah, my favorite. I don't know if you've ever seen so um, Lee Butler, who uh, works with Jim Kearns at NC State, he shows a slide of their sample submissions to the diagnostic clinic by month of year. And you know the the Bankrest one is very predictable. And the Ultra Dwarf one looks literally like a shotgun blast. I mean, there's no predictability to it. it. It's just all over the map in terms of when they're getting disease samples submitted into their lab. And, you know, it's interesting about you think about Poe on the Ultra Dwarfs. I gave a talk in, in May, not to date this podcast at all, but in, in May of 2022. And I had a superintendent in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, raise his hand. And he said, Dr. Brazen, I got a question for you. I look at how much resistance we have to with with POA to the herbicides that we use, and particularly in ultra dwarf greens. And I look at the fact that we don't have a, not, a lot of new herbicides coming for greens use. And we have kind of an unwillingness, or not an unwillingness, just a hesitancy is probably a better word, to label things for greens use because of the liability that comes with that. Looking at my golf calendar now, where my play is very shoulder season heavy, and I don't have a lot of play, as much play in the summer as I do in the spring and the fall, would I be better served to go back to bent grass because the POA would blend with the bent grass in the spring and the fall better than it does with the dormant Bermuda grass? And I about fell over. <laughs> I, I have I I I never thought I'd hear that question and and here that was probably naive of me because everything in this business is cyclical and and here we are you know where that's on the table. Yeah, I that type of thinking is you know it's not uncommon from from my conversations with folks that you know the Ultradorf is a fantastic surface but you have to have the right the right situation to really make it that way and play volumes and shade issues and you know it's it's got some limitations every grass does so getting to you know the specifically you mentioned curb for for applications on ultra dwarf greens you already touched a little bit on some of the hesitations or maybe things that superintendents need to overcome when making these uh, these applications so can we dive deep into what some tips are for rates timing carrier volume watering in you know i i know the label obviously has has information on this stuff, but I'd like to get your your take on it, um, specifically with curb, but then a- any others that you might have in terms of post application for uh, for POA green or for for POA on ultra dwarf greens. So, I mean, I think for curb, the first thing I'd say is is to mix it with something else. And I know superintendents probably aren't going to want to hear that, but we have got to a place of using curb in large part because we have widespread resistance to uh, the ALS inhibitors, particularly Revolver on the Ultra Dwarfs. You know, my concern is we already have curb resistance in POA annual documented. Uh, the first report was in Georgia from my colleague, uh, Patrick McCullough at UGA. We have golf courses in Tennessee with curb resistance now on putting greens. And if we continue to use curb alone, we're just going to select for more curb resistant populations over time. So mixing it in uh, with other chemistry, I think is helpful, whether that's an exonerate application or another ALS inhibitor in the event you're still ALS ALS susceptible, or I think that that's, that's practical sense. So that would be my, my recommendation number one. Recommendation number two is definitely to water the product in after application. Uh, 
you know, I think we forget sometimes curb is root absorbed and it needs to get into the soil to do what we want it to do. The, the mixture piece can complicate that, to be fair. Timing is another part of this where I have worked with superintendents that want to use curb in the spring of the year on fairly mature plants, and that's not setting the product up to be successful. Um, I know that it is labeled for post-emergence POA control. All of our data, and I know my colleagues at other universities, all their data would tell you that when we put this out in in the fall on smaller plants, the chances of success are higher than when you get it on multi-tiller plants uh, in the spring. Uh, in terms of rate, uh, we've had the best success with programs that get you to 30 ounces of the SC product, um, and that's 30 ounces per acre. There's been different ways to go about that. I know superintendents in, say, the Savannah area, they like multiple applications at 10 ounces on a four-week interval. Uh, we have superintendents in this region that'll do two applications uh, at 15 ounces. I've seen single applications at 30. As long as you get to 30, based on the data that we've collected over the past probably four or five years here, that's going to put you in a place where you're, you're likely to, to, to get the response that you want. And, and keep in mind that that is well below the label maximum for what you could put out, say, for curb uh, if you were not on a greens, uh, not in a green situation. You can go higher than 30, but there's really not a need to do that. I, I think based on what we've seen, trying to balance turf safety with control, 30 ounces, getting to 30 is a, is a good number. What about POA cure? I mean, that's available in many states. I know a lot of superintendents have have started to use that on greens in, in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. You know, um, so it's a new tool, uh, a new mode of action in the herbicide toolbox. So what are you seeing with POA cure? Um, is it becoming more widely used and any suggestions uh, for superintendents trying it, you know, for the first time? My first suggestion would be that the name probably doesn't do the product uh, any favors um, in terms of calling it the cure to all your POA problems. Um, you know, if you're a Bankrass superintendent and you're using POA cure for the first time, uh, I'll say it's the best POA control herbicide in bentgrass I've ever worked with. All that being said, I think all of the cultural things that you were doing, whether that is uh, nutritionally with your irrigation, traffic management, PGR program, et cetera, all the stuff that you were doing to try to keep POA out of your greens before POA cure was available for commercial sale, you want to keep doing, right? We don't want to take all of that off the table and then just rely only on this uh, cure herbicide in order to do what we want to do. I also think to consider, you know, this is, are you the right candidate for POA cure? Uh, you know, if you are, you know, 30, 40% POA and you go on a POA cure program, given the reseed interval into POA cure treated soil being fairly lengthy, I'm not so sure you want your greens to look like that for that length of time. Uh, it might be a lot cleaner to bite the bullet, make a non-selective application and renovate to one of the, the many new bank grasses that we have that are uh, performing well and of such high quality. Um, so really think about if you're a candidate to do that because the residual of the material in soil uh, certainly is not something to be ignored. You know, it, for the warm season folks that are trying it, we've had it in warm season trials for a few years. Uh, it can work well. Uh, we did some work with it uh, on other resistant populations where 
We put it on plants that we knew were glyphosate resistant and it controlled them well. We put it on plants that were simazine resistant. It controlled them well. We put it on barricade resistant plants, controlled them well. We have put them, we have put Poacure on non-target site resistant plants and it has not controlled it. So it is not going to help in a, in a non-target site, at least for that one population, it didn't help in a non-target site context there. And that kind of makes sense. You know, if you're a plant that has upregulated mechanisms to metabolize herbicide, it's not going to really matter what the, the herbicide is. Our overall response on susceptible populations in ultra dwarfs has been kind of mixed. Um, we've had some years where we've followed the the label directions of two to three application programs in the fall and, and had decent results in other years where the results haven't been uh, nearly as good. And you know, we've been largely in, unsuccessful in controlling POA, uh, not on a putting green with it. So green surrounds, particularly in Bermuda grass surrounds, we haven't really had good luck with applications in, in that environment. And the only really working hypothesis I have is that, and I'm sure you've seen this in your part of the world, where you know the best programs in bentgrass, they apply the product in the fall, and you kind of have the ability for the surrounding bentgrass to grow for an extended period and kind of outcompete that sick POA into the void. And by the time you get into the spring of the next year, the POA is gone and those voids are bentgrass. Well, in a Bermuda grass situation, that grass is dormant. So now we've made our Poacure applications, you know, say it's in collars and the dormant grass is just sitting there and it sits there through the winter and it sits there through early spring. And it just really hasn't been the same sort of system that has been so successful in, uh, in bank grass. Very interesting comments there. And I really, I mean, I completely agree with you in terms of the overarching overarching part of POA care is that it is still a tool and you have to have all the other things culturally set up to to have a lot of success long term whether it's a bank grass scenario um, and then your comment about expecting things to fill in on a, on a warm season scenario and, and some of the challenges that that brings there so really interesting I want to get you out of here with sort of this final final thought and you, you somewhat touched on it earlier um We've got a ton of great research, and a, and a bunch of you guys are all working. I mentioned the Resist Poa project. You know, you're you're looking at it from all angles. Still, there's there's part of it that feels like Poa. It's just so it's so adaptive um, to whatever we seem to throw at it. I mean, do you really think we're we're eventually headed to a, a spot where supermutants in the southeast just sort of end up maintaining Poa as part of their Bermuda grass or, or just warm season playing surface, or do you think there's still sort of hope? I, I do think that we're going to get to a point where we're going to be managing POA as part of the canopy and it's going to kind of ebb and flow in its prevalence over time. I, I don't think that's going to happen in 2022 or 23 or maybe even 24. And I, and I may be alone in that in that opinion, but I just I think when one kind of zooms out and looks at this, you know, movie of this resistance movie if you will well we kind of have seen the ending with palmer amaranth and it's not we get to a point where there's no more palmer amaranth problems anymore we have to do things that maybe we're a little bit uncomfortable um to do in order to make that not part of those systems so yeah i, I think at the end of the day we're in the business of maintaining surfaces for play we're not in the business of maintaining monostands of turf grass and 
I think superintendents are smart enough to come up with ways to manage this as part of the surface and still have that surface be high quality. I've already seen uh, some guys go out and, you know, change things with mowing height to make uh, not only overall pressure maybe a little bit lower, but when plants are there, again, the canopy is a little bit taller so that uh, height discrepancies maxed. I think there's a whole world out there of shoulder season growth regulator use that has been largely unexplored where that's everything, I shouldn't say everything, that has been the backbone of POA management in cool season turf for decades has been PGR applications. Well, you think about it. Well, that's man, that's PGR applications on mature plants that are persist, persisting month over month, year after year. Well, in the Southeast, we're kind of managing both, right? We might have a small subset that uh, persist month over month, year after year. And, and the big bulk of it is going to be a flush of new seedlings uh, that emerge in the fall. Well, would those same PGR applications help us maybe more in the Southeast when we're dealing with these seedling plants that are just emerging from the soil? I mean, I think this is an area that hasn't been explored enough yet. And, and it's probably where we go next in terms of thinking about preparing the surface for play and using the tools that we have to do that. I, I know we're working with a few superintendents that have held, you know, larger, uh, larger events in the Southeast. They've been managing warm season fairways and, and because of when those events were scheduled, started to put them on uh, fungicide programs all year long and their POA pressure got worse. Well, why is that? You know, the fungicides are going to keep the POA that are in those fairways alive, just like they're going to help the desirable turf that's in the fairway too. And, you know, they're in a situation where it's okay as long as the surface is what is required for the event that's being held. And I, I think, you know, I, I think this is a much stronger plant than we give it credit for. Some of the best clubs in this country play on POA and have pretty high level events as you all are familiar with at the USGA. And I think that that's a mentality that might need to make its way south. Really appreciate you taking the time today, Jim, to, to talk to me. It's been awesome. Love hearing your perspective on things and, and no doubt the insights that you provided are going to help superintendents, you know, design their programs, sort of battle POA a, a, as they wish. And, um, you know, like you said, they're, they're a smart group. They're going to figure out how they can best manage this this plant, whether it's trying to get rid of it or learning to uh, to, to appreciate it a little bit more. So thanks again. Uh, it's been awesome. Oh, you're welcome, Adam. Thanks again for having me on. Thanks for listening to the USGA Green Section podcast. Be sure to subscribe, listen, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also keep up with the latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication that's published twice a month.